1 John chapter 2, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me. This morning we'll be looking at verses 15, 16, and 17 in 1 John chapter 2. You know, throughout our study of 1 John, we've seen that there really are three words that John uses more than once to describe the nature, the character of God, who God is, what God is like. And those words are these, light, life, and love. Uh, John says in the first chapter that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He also says that in him is life, and that life was made manifest. And he explains what he means by this in the first couple of verses of chapter 1, where in sort of a similar way of what he does in John 1.1 and the verses that follow in his gospel, he describes the incarnation, how the Son of God came to where we are, wrapped himself up in human flesh. The life of God was made manifest in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, John says that God is love, and he makes that statement. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. So God is light, God is life, and God is love. And you know, when you think about it, the Christmas season really is all about the light of God in Jesus Christ, the life of God in Jesus Christ, and the love of God in Jesus Christ. Christmas is about light life and love and yet we know that there is a much brighter light that shines this time of year than all of those twinkling little lights that decorate our trees and our neighborhoods even my neighborhood this year our neighborhood's doing this thing called a light fight it's about the second or third year that we've done just about every home in our neighborhood is decorated with lights and uh, I hope and pray that these airline pilots don't get my neighborhood confused with the runway over at Greensboro Airport. But you know, there's a much brighter light that's shining than the lights associated with Christmas. It's the light of God in Jesus Christ. And this is a busy time of year. We would say there's a lot of life, there's a lot of activity, there's a lot of hustling and bustling and shopping that happens and people looking for just the right gift for their loved ones. And yet we know that ultimately this is not where life is to be found. And beyond that, around Christmas, we get together with friends and family that we love, and there are all the parties and festivities associated with that. But you know, Christmas is really ultimately a, about a deeper love than the kind of love that we see portrayed in the movies this time of year. No, the Apostle John wants us to know something about the light, the life, and the love of God, which is revealed in Jesus Christ. And this is something that's life-changing, because the man or woman who comes to Christ is now walking in the light of Christ. The person who comes to know Jesus Christ uh, now possesses the life of Jesus Christ on the inside. And as they've come to experience the love of Jesus Christ, they express that love to their fellow man and to their brothers and sisters in the faith. And so John writes about light, life, and love. Now, in these verses that we're looking at here this morning, 
They're kind of sandwiched in between a section here in chapter 2 where John has been dealing with this subject of love in particular and the way that Christians ought to be known for their love. And he says that there's a right kind of love that we ought to be known by as believers, but he also says that there's a wrong kind of love which should not be characteristic of our lives as believers. And specifically, he's referring to love of the world. So notice what John writes, beginning with verse 15, where he says to believers, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I want to speak from this subject this morning, just a simple statement don't love the world because that's essentially what the apostle john is telling us here in these verses don't love the world and you'll notice that he's giving us an imperative here it's the language of command don't love the world he follows that up by mentioning the impossibility of loving both the world and god at the same time he then goes on to describe the impermanence of the world which he says is passing away Now, if you want to see these verses in context, keep in mind what he said in the preceding verses where he's explained the indicative, which basically is language that describes truths uh, for all believers, things that are true of every Christian man and woman. You go back up to what he says there in verses 12 through 14. He's written to his spiritual children. And keep in mind what he says about them. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. So he's referring to his believers. These are different, uh, all believers, different places in terms of their spiritual progress, their journey with the Lord Jesus. But each of the statements that he makes there are in the indicative, which means they're true of every believer. We need to know that our sins are forgiven, that our sonship is certain, and God is our Father, and that strength for the Christian life. This is something that's supplied by the living Christ himself. And it's important that we understand this, especially as we come to consider what he writes here, beginning with verse 15, where he says, don't love the world. Because Christian men and women, on the basis of what's true of us and what we know God has done for us in Jesus Christ, this serves as great incentive to foster different appetites, to have different attitudes, to live with different ambitions than the rest of the world around us. Christians don't live for the world or for the things of the world because we ultimately know that our citizenship is in heaven. So John is moving from encouraging his readers to warning his readers here in verse 15. And this is a warning for everyone in the church with no exception. So don't love the world. Uh, Notice three reasons that John gives for why we're not to love the world. The first reason is this. He says, don't love the world because of your father. Christians should not love the world simply because 
God is our Father, and we've been adopted into the family of God. And so the first thing we see from verse 15, again, it's this imperative command, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, how exactly are we to interpret this, especially when you read about God's love for the world, say, in John 3.16? Elsewhere, from John's own pen, John has said that God loves the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And so now he's saying here in 1 John chapter 2 that we as believers are not to love the world. And someone says, well, is this a contradiction? Well, not when you understand the way that the word world is used throughout the New Testament. The word is cosmos that he's using here, and there are at least three different ways that this word is used all throughout the books of the New Testament. Uh, sometimes when this word is used, it's used to refer to creation or the created order. For example, John chapter 1, where John says that Jesus is the true light who's come into the world, cosmos. But what's being referred to there is the, the, the created order. It's this idea that the Son of God, he's, he's wrapped himself up in human flesh. He's come to where we are, the creator has stepped into the created order. And Christmas is nothing short of a miracle when you think about it. The fact that the creator of the universe stepped into our cosmos. He came into our world in order to rescue our world. And so this word cosmos can refer to world as in the created world, but that's not the way John is using it here in 1 John chapter 2. Uh, then secondly, sometimes this word cosmos is used to describe humanity or the world of human beings. Uh, this is the way that it's used in John 3.16, for example, for God so loved the world, cosmos. But the context shows that this is referring to the world of people, the world of humanity. God loves people. And as believers, we ought to love people. People are made in the image of God. And so that's not how John is using the word either here in 1 John chapter 2. The third way that this word cosmos is used, uh, often it's used to describe the world as it's fallen, as in a fallen world system. This is the way Jesus uses it in John 15 where he tells his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it's hated you. So the idea here is it's the world as it's in the grip of sin, the world as a fallen system under the influence, under the direction of the evil one. And this is the way that the Apostle John is using that word cosmos here in verse 15 when he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. Obviously, he's not telling believers that we shouldn't love the created order. I mean, I love creation. You love creation. There's nothing more uh, wonderful than when you take a drive into the mountains or you're sitting beside the beach and you take in the beauty of that scenery and it provokes wonder in your heart as a believer and leads you to worship the one who created all of that. It's a wonderful gift, and we're grateful for that. And obviously, when John says don't love the world, he's not telling us to disregard our fellow man because we know the clear command of Scripture is that we're to love others. We're to love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and we're to love our neighbor as we would love ourselves. And so that means the way that he's using this here, it's referring to the world as it's corrupted by sin. 
this present world system as it's in opposition to God and its truth. And ultimately, it's Satan who's behind such a system. And he works within that system to manipulate and blind people who were held within that system. That's why Jesus refers to the devil as the ruler of this cosmos, this fallen world system. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who were perishing. In their case, the God of this world, cosmos, he's talking about Satan here, little g-o-d. He's blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, which is why our evangelistic efforts ought to be saturated with prayer which is why our evangelistic efforts ought to be in the confidence of the power of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to open blind eyes. Why? Because the enemy actively works to keep people blinded to the truth of the gospel. He wants to fill their minds and their lives with so much distraction to keep them from coming to an understanding of the truth of who God is, what God has done in the person of Jesus. And so we should pray for those who were lost. Pray that their eyes would be open and their spiritual understanding would be open to who Jesus is. So this fallen world system, as it is, corrupted by sin, this is what John is saying. Don't love the world. Don't pattern your life after this world and this world's way of thinking. And and to be precise, this is a present tense imperative. Literally, John is saying, stop loving the world. And it indicates a command to stop an action that's already in progress. The idea is that we have this automatic bent toward loving the world, which must be overcome by God's grace in our lives. And the reason for this is because we have a sinful nature that so easily gravitates toward the things of the world where there's a fixation on on the material over the spiritual, where we try to find satisfaction in pleasure over principle. And you think about what people live for. So when John says don't love the world, he's basically saying don't live for this world as it's fallen and corrupted by sin. Now think about what people live for. Uh, Think about the world of leisure. The world of finances, money, possessions, people can live for that. They can make that their whole world. The world of sports, the world of entertainment. Every now and then you'll hear someone say this about someone else. Well, so-and-so, he or she is my whole world. And we use that language, but what we're basically saying is this is where we really go to find life. This is what I retreat into whereby I seek satisfaction and fulfillment on the inside. But what John says in these verses is that ultimately all of that will leave you empty and unsatisfied because it won't satisfy. And Christians ought to be known for a different type of love. Now, obviously, when he says don't love the world, that doesn't mean that he's saying you shouldn't be able to attend a football game and have a good time. Thank God for those gifts. It's wonderful. But just don't make it your whole world. Thank God that you have means by which you can provide for your family, steady income. But when he says don't love the world, listen, don't make money your whole world. Don't make your career your whole world. Because ultimately when you do that, it will collapse on you like a house of cards. 
because it's so short-lived. So John is saying, don't love the world because of your father. And the man or woman who loves the world has bought into it as a system. It means the world's ideals become their ideals. It means the world's view of human sexuality becomes their view of human sexuality. The world's approach to money and possessions becomes their approach to money and possessions. And so to love the world is basically to approach life in the same way as the rest of an unbelieving world, to live for the same things, to pursue the same goals, buying things we really don't need with money we really don't have to impress people we really don't even like. Don't live for the world. Don't live for the things of the world. There's a different way in which believers ought to live their lives. Paul says as much in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he says, don't be conformed to this world. Literally, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And you think about how easy that is for the world to want to press us into its mold now. There are more avenues and means by which the world can encroach on our thinking and our opinions and our value systems perhaps more so than ever before. With the digital explosion, it's easy for us to find ourselves getting caught up in, in, in social media movements and all kinds of stuff where the world constantly is saying, think this way, live this way. Spend your money this way. Cultivate these attitudes in your life, the same attitudes that we have. And who's behind ultimately that movement? Well, the Scripture says the evil one is behind it. And so there's a pressure then that's exerted upon us daily whereby the world wants to press us into its mold. But Paul goes on in Romans 12, and here's what he says. He says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but rather be transformed. And the word is metamorphosis. It's the same word we, we, we talk about, uh, the process that a caterpillar goes through to become a butterfly there within the cocoon. Change from the inside out. Be transformed. How is it possible to be transformed? Paul says, by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As my mind and my heart is saturated by the truth of God's will and God's word, I'm transformed by the work of God's spirit. And so John says, don't love the world, don't love the things in the world, because really you, you, you have a different value system because of who your heavenly father is. Don't love the world because of your father. Now notice the second thing that he mentions here. He says, don't love the world because of its focus. Believers ought to have a different focus than the rest of the world around us. What's the focus of the world? Well, notice what John says there in verse 16. He says, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, this is not from the Father, but is from the world. So there's an impossibility. It's seen in the fact you can't love the world and the Father at the same time. And so verse 16, John is explaining why this is the case. And the focus of this present world system can be distilled into three basic categories. The first category is what John calls the desires of the flesh. That word desires there means inordinate desire, a wanton craving for something. 
Some translations use the word lust to describe what John is referring to here. It's a word that carries this idea of burning flesh. This does not so much refer to our physical bodies as much as it does to human nature that's been corrupted by sin. It's man's nature apart from God's grace. It's what sin has rendered our basic humanity down to. Desires of the flesh. This describes a life that's dominated entirely by the senses. You want to know how the world lives? You want to know what the unbelieving world focuses on and fixates on? The desires of the flesh because it doesn't know any better. It ought to be different in the life of a man or woman who knows Jesus because spiritually he or she has been brought from death to life. The living, indwelling Spirit of God, the life of God on the inside They've been brought to life in Jesus Christ. So what's the fruit of this life that Paul's describing, desires of the flesh, or or John is describing? Desires of the flesh. Well, elsewhere in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 5 says that the works of the flesh are evident. Now listen to this. This is characteristic of the one who's living for the desires of the flesh that John is describing. Galatians 5.19, sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Someone says, well, sorcery is not some, I'm not so much gravitated or tempted toward that, but what about fits of anger? That pretty much gets us all, doesn't it? Rivalry, dissension, division, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelry, and the like. This is what Galatians 5, 19 through 24 says. This is, this is the works of the flesh. This is the fruit of the flesh. I find it interesting on the heels of that, Galatians 5 mentions the fruit of the Spirit as being love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is, this is what the Spirit of God, the life of God on the inside of the believer produces in the believer's life. But if you pursue the desires of the flesh, here's what you're going to reap. Immorality and impurity and sensuality and on down the line. So the world focuses on the desires of the flesh. And then notice John mentions the desires of the eyes there in verse 16. It means that a person lives only for what he sees. If I see something that catches my eye, my fancy, I then begin to crave it and I begin to want it and I begin to lust for it in my heart. And so there's this correlation between our eyes and our heart. And all too often, the eyes see what the heart wants and vice versa. So the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, this describes the person who's never satisfied with what he or she has, but lives with lustful eyes, driven to possess whatever he or she sees, and is looking, always scanning the horizon for something else that they think might satisfy. That's what the desires of the eyes are. And then notice the third category John mentions there is pride of life. This involves this desire for recognition or applause, status in the eyes of other people. It's this proud spirit of self-sufficiency that lives to look out for number one. That's the pride of life. That's what that means. 
Now, you know that when the enemy comes to tempt you and wage war against your soul, he always will tempt you in one of these three categories. Desire of the flesh, desire of the eyes, or the pride of life. This is exactly his strategy that he used against Eve in the Garden of Eden, appealing to her on the basis of her senses, her sight, the pride of life. It's the same strategy that he uses in Matthew chapter 4 when he comes to tempt Jesus there in the wilderness, trying to tempt him on the basis of his physical appetites trying to tempt him on the basis of what he could see with his eyes, trying to tempt him in the area of the pride of life, telling him to just cast himself down from the pinnacle of the temple because the Word says that the angels of heaven will bear him up, and surely that means everyone will welcome you as Messiah then. And each time he comes to level his assault against you in your life as a believer, it will always be in one of these three categories. This is why Paul says we're, we shouldn't be ignorant of the enemy's devices. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the pride of life. The world presents itself to us in this attractive way. It appeals to our eyes, to our senses. But John says, all that's in the world, these three categories, desire of the flesh, desire of the eyes, the pride of life, he says it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. In other words, it doesn't originate in the Father. These lusts find their origin in a different source. So again, you, you keep in mind that according to John's definition, Christians are those who have the life of Christ within them on the inside. Therefore, John says, if I claim Christ is living in me, then I must not love and pursue those things that arise out of fleshly lusts. Sanctification is taking place in my life as a believer. And that means I'm being brought by God's Spirit into conformity to Christ's life. And when you look at Christ's life, how he lived, he didn't live for self-gratification. Uh, he didn't concern himself with outward show and appearance. The pride of life was nowhere to be found in him. Even in his birth, where was he to be found? He was found in a stable of all places, among livestock. Who attended his birth? Lowly shepherds. And it was all just fulfillment of prophecy where uh, the prophet Isaiah said that he shall grow up as a tender plant and a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. When we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men. Rejected by the world. Man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That's how he lived. What did he teach? We said things like this. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. He doesn't say the ones who will be satisfied are those who make the most money or have the most toys in the end. You seen the bumper sticker that says, he who dies in the end with the most toys wins? Here's what I want to say. The one who dies with the most toys still dies, and he can't take his toys with him. I'd be long for a bumper sticker, but I think it's a much better statement. Now listen, Jesus came not as one to be served, but one who served and gave his life a ransom for many. And so my point is simply this. If his life is within me, will it not manifest itself through the same attitudes, actions, and ambitions that my Lord had in his earthly life? 
This is, this is what it means to be brought into conformity with Jesus. It means I live with a different focus. So don't love the world because of your father. Don't love the world because of its focus. And then notice last, John says, don't love the world ultimately because it's fleeting. It's not going to last. He says in verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the world is passing away. Uh, That means the best this world can offer you, it's only temporary. And not only will it pass away, but John says that it's in the process of passing away. The tense of the verb, this is expresses of the, uh, expressing the fact that the world as a system is in the process right now as we speak, passing away. And when you consider what John says here and you compare that with what we know about the laws of thermodynamics, this is a remarkable statement because as it is now, this world is winding down, cannot last The very best that this world can offer you, it's temporary. It will not last. I was reminded of this last week on my birthday. My absolute favorite cake that Anita makes every year on my birthday, she makes yellow cake with chocolate icing. Now, some of y'all like red velvet cake and German chocolate cake and all that coconut junk. I like just a plain Yellow cake with chocolate icing. And I like it right when it's out of the oven, right when it's hot. And Anita lathers that thing down with some chocolate icing. And, I mean, I don't even take time to cut it and put it on a plate. I just eat it out of the pan. It's good. (laughs) When it's still warm and moist, I take my fork and I get me a big piece and I just eat it and I'm just savoring it. But it doesn't last. Which is why I cut a second piece for myself. It's my birthday. (laughs) But it doesn't last. It goes away. And if that's all you have to live for, what type of existence is that? Trying to live for that which ultimately doesn't satisfy, that which is impermanent, that which does not last. That's what John is referring to here. Implicit within this word, it's this idea of impermanence. He says the world is passing away. And it's interesting, the word that he uses here in the first century, it came out of the theaters of the day. Where at the conclusion of a scene, the curtains would come down, the props would be removed from the stage. They were so impermanent. How foolish it would be for the actor to say to the stagehand, no, don't take that away, that's mine. No, it's not. It's just a prop that will not last. It's here for this scene, but it's gone by the next. That's how John is describing this present world. It's fleeting. It's gone. It's a vapor. And you compare that uh, with the fact that your life is a vapor, a mist that's gone. Here one moment, gone the next. How foolish it would be to spend your life burning both ends of the candles for something that ultimately is not going to last or satisfy which is why Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven because ultimately where your treasure is, this is where your heart will be. How do you lay up treasures in heaven? Last time I checked, the only thing going to heaven were people, the souls of people. 
investing in people. And the enemy comes along, and the enemy wants us to take people for granted in our lives. He tries to short-circuit our relationships, tries to pit us against one another and divide us and all this, that, and the other. And how many families and how many relationships have been destroyed because someone was pursuing something ultimately that was temporal, temporary, didn't last, wouldn't last. And people sacrifice relationships on the altar of some kind of temporary success. And John says it ought not be this way with those who know God. It ought not be this way. David Allen says loving the world is a bad investment because the world is passing away and over everything in the world God has written these words dust you are and to dust you will return so the world is passing away with all of its desires nothing lasts forever right well not exactly because look at the last statement of verse 17 John says but whoever does the will of God abides forever Whoever does the will of God abides forever. What is the will of God? Listen to me. The will of God is that you come to know Jesus. The will of God is that you confess your sin and you repent and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died for your sin, who rose again on the third day, who's the ascended, exalted, glorified Lord of heaven and earth, who one day is coming back to take what's his. And let me tell you, you live for him and you obey him. You surrender to him. The one who does the will of God, John says, will abide forever. (laughs) Which means we can lay down all of this temporary stuff on the altar of obedience because we know it's only temporary. Which means I'm free from living with this materialistic attitude that lives for the acquisition of stuff. You know, a lot of people are hard on the Christmas season for this simple fact. You know what? It's too materialistic. It's too materialistic. And some folks are just downright cynical. I read something yesterday. Uh, someone wrote, lately this time of year leaves me feeling melancholy. I don't do well with being told how I'm supposed to feel. I can't manufacture feelings just because it's expected of me. All these seasonal messages telling me I should feel joyful make me wonder what's wrong with me. And that just makes it that much harder to find any joy. I feel oppressed by all the celebration. It all feels like such a chore. Putting up decorations just to take them back down in a month. Enduring irritable crowds of people in stores to burn my money, buying people presents that they don't want or need. The obligatory admonitions to remember, quote, the reason for the season because no celebration is complete without some good old-fashioned Christian guilt. And that expresses the sentiment of a lot of people, doesn't it? People have been wounded, people have been hurt, people have been burned. But I think that it speaks to an ache and an emptiness deep down within the soul. You know the irony? The Grinch was just as miserable on top of Mount Crumpet, just as materialistic as all of the Who's down in Whoville. 
See, thing is, materialistic that doesn't necessarily mean you live for a yacht. You can have little and still be materialistic. Because materialism is just the essence of what the Apostle John is describing here. It's loving the world, loving this world, trying to find your happiness or your satisfaction or ultimately your fulfillment in the stuff of life. Whether that be people or whether that be things or whether that be possessions. And John says this world is passing away. And so loving the world, materialism, this is in the same category as building your house upon the sand because ultimately it's doomed to failure. And you've heard the old proverb, you can't take it with you. You might could expand that to say this, you can't even hold on to it in this world. Try to hold on to your health in this world and discover that you can't do it. Try to hold on to your family in this world and discover that you can't really do it. Try to hold on to your career where you go to find identity and you can't do it. Because you're just left with just this futility and this emptiness at the end of the day. Because with every season of life, God in his grace, listen to me, he strips away from us the very things that we try to retreat into to find satisfaction in and fulfillment in apart from him so the very emptiness that you feel may indeed be the gift of God in your life directing your eyesight away from the stuff of this life and the things of the world so that you look to him and say you know what you are my portion you are my treasure you are my life not this stuff not this world which is fleeting which is passing away And so John is contrasting two ways of life here. Life lived for eternity and a life lived for the temporary. The worldly-minded person lives for the stuff of the flesh, which is passing away. But the spiritually-minded man or woman of God who knows Jesus is living for the joy of the Spirit. And the one who does the will of God, John says, he abides forever. And it had a good promise. Let's stand for prayer this morning. You know, some time ago, I can remember hearing a song. And the lyrics of the song said something like this. This life is like a vapor. And then our work on earth is done. We must have our house in order as we face the setting sun. I know that Christ my Savior shall be my faithful guide as I cross to the land of the living, bidding this old world goodbye. And the chorus says something like this, I'm leaving the land of the dying for that sweet land of the living. Going to that wonderful city that John saw coming down. You talk about beautiful singing upon that heavenly shore. Yes, I'm going to the land of the living, never to die anymore. And the world doesn't understand that. The world says, this is the land of the living. And death means we go to the land of the dying. But no, the gospel turns that upside down. And the gospel shows us how this really is the land of the dying. And folks, we're headed to the land of the living. That's why Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life.
And he who believes in me will never die. Is he your treasure? I pray that he is. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you don't know him today, right there where you are in an attitude of repentance and faith, turn from your sin, confess your sin, and cry out to Jesus to save you. Maybe pray along these lines and say, Lord, I confess my sin and I believe that you died on the cross to save me from my sin. I believe that you rose again from the dead. You're the ascended and the exalted Lord. Please forgive me of my sin. Be my Savior and save me today, Jesus, for your sake. And there's no person who's ever come to him in faith that he's turned away. Here in a moment, we're going to sing. If you've prayed to receive Christ today, we'd like to know about it. I'd invite you to just slip out of where you've been. Maybe meet me here at the front. We'd love to pray with you, introduce you to some folks, even talk to you after the service is over. But Christian man, Christian woman, what about you? God is your father. You're adopted into the family of God. Is heaven's value system your value system? What are you living for? Who are you living for? Jesus? Are your affections on heavenly things? Or things which are so fleeting, so temporary, and passing away? Lord, take this word. Transform us for your sake. In Jesus' name. Amen.